Welcome to Right Here, Right Now. That is W-R-I-T-E. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie. I'm Lucy. And I'm Eleanor. We are the show where we read out your submissions, your fabulous submissions that we love, your short stories, your poems, your little musings that you drop down and we love them here. So thank you. This is the show where we read them out amongst uh, some other better known works, some classics, and we have uh, both of those things for you tonight. Before we do dive in, we have something important to let you know. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land, the House of Sin and Studios Stand, on the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respects to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. We'd also just like to give a quick content warning. We're reading some creative works tonight and some themes covered might not be for everyone. So if sensitive or little ears are tuned in, we recommend you switch stations over to our sister station, Sin 90.7. Great. Uh, thank you for that, Lucy. And now for our first piece. This is a regular submitter of ours. Mr. William Kane has come back again. He has. Um, now, this is a poem titled Memory of a Dream. Away we go. Sometimes I don't wake from my dreams. They stay with me and direct me. What's the difference between your dreams and your dreams? It's the dead of night, although we are ringed on the horizon by ancient mountains. They cut ghostly, impossible purples as we, who is in the car with me? glide down a desert road. Silently, softly, we are moving towards it, although it retreats in equal measure. We are moving relative to the neon lights that flit past, but the mountains don't seem to move. This is all from over five years ago, but it comes back to me. The images invite themselves in and they are accompanied by an emotional signature, a feeling Sometimes when I remember the dream, or the dream remembers me. The images and landscapes are a window into the texture and psyche at that time. Some symbols are clearer than others. I realise that I don't know who is driving the car, and then I realise that maybe I am both the driver and the passenger. My dream jumps to memory and I'm watching Grandad slowly die in front of us. He slips in and out, but is clearly in pain. We slide a pillow under his head whilst he attempts to relieve himself on the toilet. In between garbled non-words, he asks me when I'll get my licence. Soon, Pa. Soon. The desert night is that perfect ambient temperature that invites you in and whispers to you that it is all yours if you just reach out to take it. Moving feels right, moving through the New Mexico night. Deserts are lonely places, but not when you are driving with yourself. The dream starts to fade and memory takes over and fuses it to another. Maybe the moment is gone. Methyl ethyl, twilight driving comes on and I remember again that love is worth it. 
That there was a poem by William Kane, a regular submitter of ours. Thank you so much, William. And if you too would like to submit, you can send us send it on through to our email right here radio. That's W R I T E here radio at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram and Facebook. Those are two handles that are still right here radio with a W. <laughs> Now, I wanted to follow up that poem uh, with, given, you know, its content, uh, with the opening of one of my favourite books, M Train by Patti Smith, I think. Uh, they kind of... She writes about a dream, which I'll read to you now, um, and I think they kind of go together really well. It's not so easy writing about nothing. That's what a cowpoke was saying as I entered the frame of a dream. Vaguely handsome, intensely laconic, he was balancing on a folding chair, leaning backwards, his Stetson brushing the edge of the dun-coloured exterior of a lone cafe. I say lone, as there appeared to be nothing else around except an antiquated gas pump and a rusting trough ornamented with a necklace of horseflies slung above the last dregs of its stagnant water. There was no one around either, but he didn't seem to mind. He just pulled the brim over his hat, over his eyes, and kept on talking. It was the same kind of silver belly open road model that Lyndon Johnston used to wear. But we keep on going, he continued, fostering all kinds of crazy hopes, to redeem the lost, some silver of personal revelation. It's an addiction, like playing the slots, or a game of golf. It's a lot easier to talk about nothing, I said. He didn't outright ignore my presence, but he did fail to respond. Well, anyway, that's my two cents. You're just about to pack it in, toss the clubs in a river, when you hit your stride, the ball rolls straight into a cup, and your, the coins fill your inverted cap. The sun caught the edge of his belt buckle, projecting a flash that shimmered across the desert plain. A shrill whistle sounded, and as I stepped to the right, I caught sight of his shadow spilling a whole other set of sophisms from an entirely different angle. I've been here before, haven't I? He just sat there, staring out at the plane. Son of a bitch, I thought. He's ignoring me. Hey, I said. I'm not dead. Not a shade passing. I'm flesh and blood here. He pulled out a notebook and started writing. You got to at least look at me, I said. After all, it is my dream. I drew closer, close enough to see what he was writing. He had his notebook open to a blank page and three words suddenly materialized. Nope, it's mine. Well, I'll be damned, I murmured. I shaded my eyes and stood there looking out towards what he was seeing. Dust, clouds, flatbed, tumbleweed, white sky, a whole lot of nothing. The writer is a conductor, he drawled. I wandered off, leaving him to expound on the twisting track of the mind's convulsions. Words that lingered then fell away as I boarded a train of my own that dropped me off fully clothed in my rumpled bed. Opening my eyes, I rose, staggered into the bathroom and splashed cold water on my face in one swift motion. I slid on my boots, fed the cats, grabbed my watch cap and my old black coat, 
and headed out toward the road many times taken, across the White Avenue to Belford Street and a small Greenwich Village cafe. An excerpt from M Train by Patti Smith. Um, I really love that one. Yeah, yeah, beautifully written. (laughs) And you're so right. I think that fit really nicely with the submission earlier from William Kane about dreams. Mm-hmm. Now, next up, we have another submitter who popped into our inbox today. Uh, the next few pieces are by Darcy Rock, who studies a Bachelor of Creative Writing at RMIT. So to kick us off is Endless Blue, which is forthcoming to be published on lawjournal.com. That's L-O-R journal.com. Endless Blue by Darcy Rock. The chutney was sour today. It didn't swallow the same. Breathing hurt my lungs, and without her cigarettes, I felt a lingering pain. A short piece there, Endless Blue by Darcy Rock. I was just going to say I really like the, t- the title in kind of relation to the, the piece. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes you think one thing, at least this is, is how it was for me when I heard it, it kind of makes you think one thing and then you read the poem and it still makes sense, the title, but it kind of takes it on a different, different light. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah. that's really true. This next one, again, by Darcy Rock. This is what I know. One, when you get a splinter under your fingernail, you run onto that stage and smile. Two, those big teeth came from somewhere. With a G-A-P in between the buck teeth, now stained in their smoking twenties. Three, internal shrieking. Arabesque, a tear rolls. You see a crowd of glass faces. You stare forth at the lights, looking out to someone, everyone. Gliss, your lips chap. No, you will not cry. Four, when you step off that stage, you throb with relief like you were there all along. This is how sex would feel if you were present. Five, the thing they know that they think I don't know is when it isn't real. When I fake a smile to hold it back, when I can't show emotion, when I'm not glowing like I meant to be under those hot lights. Six, the heat of the moment is unmanageable. That was This Is What I Know, a piece by Darcy Rock, who is a submitter of ours here at Right Here Radio. And we're lucky enough to have one more piece by Darcy. Uh, This one is called The One. Lost Finding The One, Question. Do you really want the one or just the feeling that someone is the one? Could you be your own one? Or does that luxury supersede your need as a lover and as one who loves? Would you find the one if you waited long enough? Would you lie to protect the one? Would you tell your friends to pretend like the one so as to increase the one's sense of self-worth? What if the one betrayed you? Would they still be the one? Would you plan revenge? How would you go about bumping into the one that is no longer the one? Would you make eye contact and smile, perhaps adding a generic greeting, nothing too special? They betrayed you, remember? 
What if it went too far? The one cannot be subject to your questioning, your persistence. The one is protected by privacy laws and personal space regulations, which must be obeyed if one is to get anywhere. The one may become enthralled by our tenacity and focus for what we want. They might see where we are coming from. They might regret their decision. They might find it in their heart to take us back. Thank and that was The One by Darcy Rock. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, so if you liked what you heard just there, you can always um, check out Darcy's Instagram at Darcy's Rocks. That's D-A-R-C-Y-S-R-O-C-K-S. And also uh, her website, darcyrock.tumblr.com. Excellent. And I also really liked how all of those pieces sounded so different to each other. Yeah. Yeah, they really did. There was a, a different style to each one and a different, I mean, our listeners can't see it like we can, but a mm. really different um, layout to all those pieces, which yeah. makes for really interesting poems. Yeah, definitely. And made that when I read those pieces, had to put some thought into how I'd present it. Yeah. Mm, it's, it's interesting how something can read so differently in our heads on paper to out loud. And I, I think that's why I really love doing this show because it can kind of make you read things in a different way or look at them in a different light. Mm. Now, I will move on um, to our next piece. Um, this poem is titled Moon. It's by Nina Winter. It was written in August 1973. I took with me to bed last night the moon. Thigh touching thigh, his luminous cheek on mine. Lips unmoving. Our faces conversed in the dark. The mist of his breath in my dreaming ear. My fingers asleep on his neck. His cold hair covered my eyes while the body made round mine a liquid fortress. A sheep cried in the night, a raccoon stirred, and several times I woke to make sure he was really there. But sometime in the night, a disappearing love. He drew the quilt around me and transient stole away. It's one of my favourite poems there by Nina Winter. Um, I found it in this really funky book that I'm holding. Um, yeah, I was going to comment on that one, actually. <laughs> that looks like something you found in a secondhand bookshop. Well, no. I'm the definitely pre-loved. It's definitely <laughs> pre-loved. I, I actually... This is cheating, I guess. I got it on Amazon, but um, it's, it's a book titled Moon Moon by Anne Kent Rush, and she was this feminist in the 70s, um, and it's all about how the moon has been used um, historically as a symbol for um, femininity and, and that kind of thing. But there's all, the, all these really interesting kind of poems and stories in there as well. Wow. That that's sounds, really cool. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> And now, next up, we're going to have a piece that was recorded by another host here at Right Here, Right Now, uh, Kate Mullaly. And um, after this piece, we've got um, a, another recording coming up for you from the moth, the moth story, excuse me. <laughs> and uh, the last bit of the show, we're actually going to be talking about some of our favourite pieces and favourite openers. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to hear what you guys have got for us because we didn't actually tell each other what we're going to be reading out tonight. So we are going to be just as surprised as all of you guys are saying. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a big 40 minutes coming up for you guys. We'll be with you until 9.30. Right now, Crossing the Line by Kate Mullaly. Crossing the Line, a short story by Kate Mullaly. Head tilted against the brick, she leaned, swaying in the hot sun. She was looking straight ahead, maybe at the posters on the wall three tracks over, the ones that warn about stepping over the line. Well, the boy asked, don't be dumb, she said. The boy was sitting against the wall next to her feet, crouching, the zip from his dark green jacket scraped slightly against the concrete. He was watching her. I'm being dead serious. No, you're being dead stupid, she said, looking straight ahead. I'm not being stupid. Sit down. I feel stupid when you're standing. You stand up then. Sit down for fuck's sake. He pulled her down by the skirt and she let him. What are you going to do then? She asked, finally looking at him. I don't know. I reckon just get a job somewhere or something and then surf heaps, obviously, and then go pro, hopefully. Oh, yeah? Where are you going to get a job then? I don't know. Well, you need to know, fuckhead. Oi, be nice. I'll get a sick-ass job. Who wouldn't want to hire me? He elbowed her gently as he laughed at himself. As if your parents are even letting you. They'll be chill with it, I reckon. Dad dropped out in, like, year eight, so I made it further than him. My parents would kill me if I said I was dropping out. Your parents are stuck up, though, babe. What the fuck, Kyle? Why would you even say that? They're my parents, you dick. It's true, though, isn't it? You even said it the other day. Yeah, but I can say that. You can't. They aren't your parents. I can't believe I even have to explain this to you. Fuck, babe, chill out. I didn't even think you'd be mad. I thought you hated them for fuck's sake. I mean, they're total pricks to us every time. No, Kyle, they are not pricks to us every time. They're pricks to you because you're rude to them. I can't believe you're having a go at my parents when yours are basically on the doll. At least my parents can support me. Are you fucking serious? Fuck this bullshit. I'm out. I don't need this shit. Not from you, Megan. He said as he got up, pulling a cigarette out of his pocket and started walking down the platform. Shit. The girl swore under her breath as she got up, following him, walking past the giant advertisements flashing ironically in the dim light. Crossed the line? You bloody idiot. That was Crossing the Line by our fourth host here at Right Here Radio, Kate Mullaly. If you also want to submit your work, feel free to send something through to radio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E, here, radio at gmail.com. Yeah, I thank you so much, Kate, um, our other host. Of course, she's not in tonight, but, um, you know, for sending in your work. I've, in early episodes, read some of my work. You guys, we're, bring it on. Me and Eleanor, we, we'll be stepping it up in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> you have to stay so, tuned. Yeah, stay tuned, audience, for some... Really bad work, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's all good here at right here, right now. Now, we are going to uh, jump to a pre-recording. Um, we've taken this from The Moth. Um, it's a big, big podcast. You've probably heard of it if you do listen to podcasts. Um, they have their story slam nights every month all over the world. They, they have them uh, here in Melbourne at Howler every few months. Uh, every Sorry, every few Mondays. 
<laughs> every few Mondays, every month. And um, they're absolutely fantastic. And this is from their podcast, um, one of the episodes, uh, and the theme was In a Compass. The storyteller is Phyllis Bodwin, and she's absolutely fantastic. This is a long one. It goes for about 15 minutes. So put the kettle on, strap yourself in with a cup of tea, and because uh, this one is about 15 minutes long here. Phyllis Bodwin uh, with Quiet Fire here on Right Here Right Now from The Moth. It's 1979 and summer in New York City. That was 38 years ago when I was being interviewed for a promotion from secretary to coordinator of daytime casting at ABC. I wore my new silk blouse, matching slim skirt, and two-inch yellow slingback heels. I thought I was ready, although there were some who thought I wasn't tough enough to hold on to a job like that. And somewhere in a tiny corner of my mind, there was a part of me that suspected, feared that they might be right. I even had a secretary come up to me and say, Phyllis, you're too nice. And to which I responded, thank you. <laughs> In any case, I was meeting a friend for lunch across the street before my two o'clock interview. And when I got there, I found hordes of people spanning the length and the width of the sidewalk in front of the building, three people deep. But I found a gap, cut through it, and when I got into the center of this human oval, something came up behind me, grabbed me, prevented me from moving, pinning my arms to my sides. And I looked over both shoulders to see if I could find out what it was, but I didn't see anything. So I started to struggle, and the more I struggled, the tighter the grip became. And then I looked to the sea of faces for some clue, some information that would help me to understand what was holding me, what was going on but they were just placidly chewing and eating their lunch and staring at me. Suddenly, the pressure was released and a set of rough hands groped me in every part of my body and then pushed me in my lower back. I stumbled forward, almost falling, but I regained my balance and I turned around to find a six-foot mime leering at me. He was in full dress with the beret, the face paint, the polar shirt, the suspenders, the black pants, and the very comfortable sneakers. <laughs> he was beckoning to me and slapping his behind, inviting me to hit him. And I took the bait. I wrapped the strap of my purse around my hand and I went after him and I swung. And as just as my purse was about to connect, he bounced to another side of the oval and leered at me again and beckoned me a second time and patted his behind and wagged it at me as an invitation to come and try again. And I did. And this time, 
eyes swung so hard that when he darted out of the way, the momentum pulled me forward and I almost stumbled and fell. And then the people started to laugh and I was feeling like a real fool. So when he beckoned me for the third time, common sense prevailed. Slim skirt, heels, sneakers. I'm outmatched. You got it, I said. And I turned and walked away and tried to go up those stairs to get into the building when he rushed up behind me and grabbed my behind and squeezed it and then darted to safety down further in the oval. And people started to laugh. And I just stood there as waves of humiliation and rage ran through my body. And I finally got myself together, got up the stairs, got into the building, got to the cafeteria where they were serving my favorite turkey tetrazzini. And I went through the motions, paid for my food, and sat at the table, but I couldn't eat or speak. I had just been blindsided, bullied, and blatantly violated by a strange man in the street with the approval of hordes of other strangers. And the thought that I had no way to protect or defend myself made me feel so powerless that I wanted to cry. So I just sat there. Then I remembered something that I might have at the bottom of my purse that I bought from a 99 cent store four months prior as a joke. And I started digging down into my purse and the minute my fingers touched that cold hard canister, I realized that I might have some options after all. <laughs> I picked it up. I wrapped my napkin around it and I said, gotta go, and turned and got back outside to see if he was still there. And of course he was. And I worked my way to the front of the crowd because it had swollen to five people deep to see what he was up to. And just as I looked up, a beautiful blonde in a pretty red dress cut through the crap just as I had, and just as she was about to mount the stairs, he snuck up behind her, and as she raised one foot, he insinuated his way between her legs and stood up, essentially mounting her on his lower back like a rider on a horse. He reached under her dress, grabbed her legs and proceeded to gallop around the oval with this woman's hair flying, arms flailing, holding onto her purse while trying to keep from falling backwards. When he let her down, he promptly lifted her dress up over her head and held it there to the hoots and the whistles of the men. And when he finally let her go, she staggered into the building and quickly disappeared. And I said to myself, is this 1979 in New York City? Or have I been dropped into the twilight zone? How could this be happening? Where are the police? 
And as I said that, this elderly gentleman, tall, handsome, distinguished man, stepped into the oval with an old woman in tow. She was holding on to the back of his jacket and he strode over to the mime and she peered out at the mime, cringed and darted back. And I said to myself, now what did he do to this old woman that would have her cringing at the sight of him? And sure enough, the old man started shaking his finger in the mime's face. And the mime feigned innocence. The hands and shoulders went up in the air like he was the victim. And he put on this terrible, sad face and mimed crying. And someone in the crowd yelled, Bo, bo, leave the mime alone. And the crowd picked up the chant, Bo, bo, leave the mime alone. And the old man looked up startled into the hostile, menacing eyes of the wolf pack consisting of executives, clerks, messengers, a UPS driver, a postal employee, even a hot dog vendor selling his food was enjoying this spectacle. And the old man shook his head sadly, gently took the old woman by the hand and led her out of the crowd. And that's when I got it. This was nothing but a big show. This was theater in the round. And every unsuspecting woman who cut through the crowd became a player whether she wanted to or not. She became the catch of the day on the mime's lunchtime menu, subject to any form of abuse he chose to cook up to feed vicariously the appetites of his patrons. And so, when he started looking around for a new player, I stepped back into the human arena and waited. He spotted me, he came towards me, and as he got closer, his eyes narrowed, and I couldn't tell whether it was because of his recognizing me from before, from what he had done to me, or whether he was strategizing how he was going to launch this frontal attack because his M.O. was to play dirty pool and sneak up behind a woman and catch her off guard. But when he got two feet away, I lifted my can of pepper spray and I sprayed him in his face. And his eyes got wild, and he reached for my throat, and I took two steps back, and I sprayed him again and again. I sprayed him like a roach. And then he began to cough and wheeze and sneeze, and he started staggering towards the street, and his loyal patrons parted and let him go. He wound up on the hood of a parked car, and I stood there and enjoyed watching him wheeze and sneeze, and as I was doing that, something karate chopped my right hand. It's another mime, and this one is twice the size of the other one, and this hulking Goliath of a man is glowering at me like he wants to kill me. 
and we both hear my canister rolling slowly but noisily down the sidewalk, and he lumbered towards it, and I whirled around, and I went after it, and the two of us scrambled to get to that canister, and I got there first, and he moved towards me, and I took a wide stance, and I got all the way down, and I started rocking, and I said, you want this motherfucker? Come and get it! He stopped cold in his tracks, and we looked at each other both knowing that if he ever got his hands on me, he could break me in two. But that day, I had had enough and seen enough pushing and grabbing and groping. That day, I was prepared to die. And I wasn't leaving the planet alone. I was taking him with me. He must have seen it in the rocking or read it in my eyes because they were saying, kill the mine. Because he backed up, turned around, and disappeared back into that crowd. And by now, the spray is starting to spread to his patrons. And they are coughing and wheezing and sneezing and quickly disperse without leaving a dime in his beret. So I drop my canister back in my purse and I stood up only to realize that I had bent the heel on my shoe and I had split my seam on my skirt all the way up to my behind. And I had an interview at two o'clock. So I hobbled back across the street and I got on that elevator and got to my office and grabbed my scotch tape and my stapler. I rushed into the ladies' room, locked the door, took off my skirt, turned it inside out, and pinched that seam back together. I pinched and stapled and pinched and stapled until I got that whole thing closed. Then I taped down one side with the scotch tape and the other side and then one going straight down the center in the hopes that no one would ever know what had just happened across the street. I went to my desk and I reached in my bottom drawer for a pair of flats that I always keep there and put them on and waited for that call from personnel. And when they called me, I went upstairs, marched into that office and aced that interview and got the job. Oh yes. 
that there was a story taken from the Moth podcast. Uh, it's called Quiet Fire by Phyllis Bodwin, and that featured on an episode uh, themed in a compass. You can find more about the Moth um, at themoth.org. That was so motivating. I feel like I could take on the world after <laughs> hearing that. <laughs> it is one of my favourites. All right, next up, you're going to hear the opening of one of my favourite books, if not the favourite. The girls can't see the title. I'm holding it down. Um, I think I might wait until after I read it uh, to see if they recognise it. Prologue. The snow in the mountains was melting and Bunny had been dead for several weeks before we came to understand the gravity of our situation. He'd been dead for ten days before they found him, you know. It was one of the biggest manhunts in Vermont history. State troopers, the FBI, even an army helicopter. The college closed, the dye factory in Hampton shut down, people coming from New Hampshire, upstate New York, as far away as Boston. It is difficult to believe that Henry's modest plan could have worked so well despite these unforeseen events. We hadn't intended to hide the body where it couldn't be found. In fact, we hadn't hidden it at all, but had simply left it where it fell in hopes that some luckless passerby would stumble over it before anyone even noticed he was missing. This was a tale that told itself simply and well. The loose rocks, the body at the bottom of the ravine with a clean break in the neck, and the muddy skid marks of dug-in heels pointing the way down. A hiking accident. No more, no less. And it might have been left at that, at quiet tears and a small funeral, had it not been for the snow that fell that night. It covered him without a trace, and ten days later, when the thaw finally came, the state troopers and the FBI and the searchers from the town all saw that they had been walking back and forth over his body until the snow above it was packed down like ice. It is difficult to believe that such an uproar took place over an act for which I was partially responsible. Even more difficult to believe I could have walked through it. The cameras, the uniforms, the black crowds sprinkled over Mount Cataract like ants in a sugar bowl, without incurring a blink of suspicion. But walking through it all was one thing. Walking away, unfortunately, has proved to be quite another and though once I thought I had left that ravine forever on an April afternoon long ago, now I am not so sure. Now the searchers have departed and life has grown quiet around me, I have come to realise that while for years I might have imagined myself to be somewhere else, in reality I have been there all the time, up at the top, by the muddy wheel ruts in the new grass, where the sky is dark over the shivering apple blossoms, and the first chill of the snow that will fall that night is already in the air. "'What are you doing up here?' said Bunny, surprised when he found the four of us waiting for him. "'Why, looking for new ferns,' said Henry. And after we stood whispering in the underbush, one last look at the body and a last look round, no drop keys, lost glasses, everybody got everything, and then started single file through the woods, I took one glance back through the saplings that leapt to close the path behind me. Though I remember the walk back and the first lonely flakes of snow that came drifting through the pines, remember piling gratefully into the car and starting down the road like a family on vacation, 
with Henry driving clenched-jawed through the potholes and the rest of us leaning over the seats and talking like children. Though I remember only too well the long, terrible night that lay ahead and the long, terrible days and nights that followed, I have only to glance over my shoulder for all those years to drop away and I see it behind me again. The ravine, rising all green and black through the saplings, a picture that will never leave me. I suppose at one time in my life I might have had any number of stories, but now there is no other. This is the only story I will ever be able to tell. That was the start of The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is one of my favourite books. Beautifully read. (laughs) Eleanor, I am so, so glad that you chose that book because I've been struggling all week about Mm -hmm. what I want to read. Yes. Too many favourites, you know. And I actually had in that list both The Secret History and The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Wow. And you've just made my decision so much easier. (laughs) Ladies of great taste. (laughs) Great call. Look at that, Lucy. That's so interesting. Why is that your favourite, one of your favourites? I think I remember reading the start of that and feeling so hooked and then it had this feel like it was set a long time ago but really it's set now mm. and it had this this element of almost magic reality that I just couldn't there'd be nights that I'd start reading it and I'd think oh, I'm so exhausted I'm gonna hardly finish a page and then three hours later I'd be there <laughs> just wanting more yeah I've I also I think I read that book in like three days or something because once you start it, you just you want to power through. It's so good. Yeah, I totally agree. Now we are going to move on to the opening sentence of one of Kate's favourite books. You heard one of Kate's stories read earlier tonight. Uh, and tonight we are also going to play one of her favourites. You might be familiar with it. Here we are. The First Paragraph of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in a supplicative degree of comparison only. Wow, that was the opening paragraph of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, read by Kate Mullaly, one of our hosts here at Right Here Radio. Thank you, Kate. Now, we are only with you guys for another 10 or so minutes. So in that 10 minutes, we're going to squeeze in uh, our favourites, my favourite and one of Lucy's favourites. And uh, before we do dive in, we will remind you, if you do wish to submit, please do. Please send us an email at right here, right now. No, that's not the email. (laughs) That's the name of the show. Uh, Right here, radio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. Or you can send us a message on Instagram or Facebook where uh, at the handle right here, radio. 
Now, Lucy. We know Lucy had a hard time choosing something tonight, so please let us know what you picked. I really did struggle, but um, I finally decided to go with um, an extract from Seven Types of Ambiguity by Elliot Perlman. Lovely. One of my favourite all-time books. So uh, this is this is from, um, for anyone who knows it, um, from the first section of the book, which is from the perspective of um, Simon's psychiatrist. Just okay. to give a little context there. Good. Okay. It is quite well understood that a clinically depressed person will show little, if any, interest in constructive activity concerning future events or outcomes. In this respect, Simon has only flirted with depression in its definitive or clinical form. But if that is all that depression required, then I could say without much hesitation that Simon has always been, other than for short periods, too involved in things to be clinically depressed. William really knows very little about what's on his son's mind. What he and many people don't understand is that there is so much more to depression than a sometimes overwhelming feeling of inadequacy and hopelessness and profound sadness. When people are depressed, they are sometimes very, very angry. They are not just quietly miserable. They can be filled with great passion. Simon was sitting on a chair under a sun umbrella in a large, well-cared-for garden with an in-ground swimming pool in the centre and birches and firs along the perimeter. He got up and we shook hands and introduced ourselves. I was struck by his clean handsomeness and by his calm. One rarely meets anyone who makes a better first impression than Simon. Do you remember? He thanked me for coming, saying he realised such a meeting was probably unusual. I said something banal about having to expect the unexpected in my line of business, and then he quoted someone, some verse about surprises or chance in that soothing voice of his. I don't know why, but I was a bit nervous. He asked me questions as though he was interviewing me and making mental notes. Middle-aged, separated, lives in a city, etc. I must have passed because he seemed to take a bit of liking to me, albeit with some reserve. Perhaps I didn't fit his stereotype of a psychiatrist. I don't know. He told me not to completely ignore whatever it was his father had told me about him, saying his father's description of him no doubt contained what Simon called that dangerous element of truth, just enough to make me suspect that everything else his father had said or would ever say was true. He was utterly charming, witty, and seemingly quite relaxed and intelligent. I was a little surprised he hadn't offered me at least a drink, but I didn't comment. We Europeans are instinctively better hosts, whether we have personality disorders or not. I didn't know him and perhaps he would never be again so forthcoming. It's not that I expect patients to entertain me, but the circumstances here were quite unusually informal. And I didn't want to interrupt him. Perhaps he felt a little uncomfortable offering me his parents' alcohol. I figured a place of that size with the in-ground pool, the tennis court and the satellite dish had to belong to his parents. They must have agreed to go out for the evening as part of the deal. I am a 32-year-old out-of-work teacher living on my own in a flat in Elwood, he laughed. But just because I don't work doesn't mean I'm broken. Then, after some small talk, he started telling me about you. At first, I didn't realise how long it had been since you had been together. It wasn't clear, so I asked him. It finished nine years ago, he said. And you want to know why I'm still talking about it, right? No, I didn't say that, I responded. No, you didn't. But only because my father is paying you not to tell me I'm mad. Or at least to tell him first. I think it's admirable what you guys do, but shit, it's embarrassingly primitive, wouldn't you say? What do you really know? And in my particular case, what do you really want to know? I'm afraid it won't make sense to you. I really mean that. 
I am genuinely afraid it won't make sense. I'm not trying to sound casual or smug. Listen, all that she was then, all that she is now, those gestures, everything I remember but won't or can't articulate anymore, the perfect words that are somehow made imperfect when used to describe her, all that should remain unsaid about her, it's all unsupported by reason. I know that. But that enigmatic calm that attaches itself to people in their presence of reason, it's something from which I haven't been able to take comfort, not reliably, not since her. It's like the smell of burnt toast. You made the toast, you looked forward to it, you even enjoyed making it, but it burned. What were you doing? Was it your fault? It didn't matter anymore. You open the windows, but only the very top layer of the smell goes away. The rest remains around you, it's on the walls. You leave the room, but it's on your clothes. You change your clothes, but it's in your hair. It's on the thin skin on the tops of your hands. And in the morning, it's still there. So that was an extract from Seven Types of Ambiguity by Elliot Perlman, one of my all-time faves. Yeah, that was great, Lucy. Thank you. Why? Well, um, really cool descriptions. Yeah. It's um, a really talented writer. Really interesting kind of setup of between the characters. Why is it your favourite? Why is it one of your favourites? I mean, this may turn some people away, so... <laughs> I, don't, there we go. I don't want to. It's not a. It's not a negative thing, but it's one of those books where like not much happens, mm. but the discussion of what it's about is so, so interesting and so, it's really insightful. So yeah. this first part is written by well, it's written by Elliot Perlman, but it's from the perspective of the psychiatrist. So he's mm-hmm. examining this man Simon, and then you know the second part is from this perspective of one of his friends. Mm-hmm. And then the third part is from one of his past lovers. And, like, it's just a interesting, like, way to... Yeah, it's an interesting way to describe a character when you, the main character is Simon, but you never... You don't actually get to his part mm. for quite some time. So, yeah. That's so rare for a book. Like, that's so rare. That's such a, stri- a, a rare way to, to write things. Yeah. How fascinating. Yeah. I always wonder which part came first for mm. Elliot Pellman. Well... If he hears this and wants to come on the show, we will open with that question. We're here for you, mate. Um, We have uh, only a few more minutes left with you. Um, So I think we've got time to squeeze a few more in. I'm now going to read one of my favourite poems. Um, This is Sudden Light by Dante Gabriel Rossetti of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. I have been here before... But when or how, I cannot tell. I know the grass beyond the door, the sweet, keen smell. The sighing sound, the lights around the shore. You have been mine before. How long ago, I may not know. But just when at that swallow's soar, your neck turned so. Some veil did fall, I knew it all of yore. Has this been thus before? And shall not thus as time eddying flight Still with our lives our love restore In death's despite And day and night yield one delight once more Beautiful <laughs> Thanks for that, Ellie <laughs> Beautiful mm-hmm. um, Tell uh, us why that's your favourite Well, I... So... I really just like the story that goes with the poem. Like, the poem's lovely and it's Mm. beautifully written, of course. Um, He was an incredibly 
I mean, yeah, incredibly talented poet. Um, but I really like the story. Um, he <laughs> he wrote his his lover Lizzie Siddle died. She was famously posed for um, his painting Ophelia, and um, she died because she caught a cold from posing in this freezing cold bath full mm. of dirty water from the Thames. Um, I've pronounced that incorrectly. Thames. 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 Hey, <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Like, and so she she died, and he was so so heartbroken. All of his poems that he'd ever written, in his love for her, or you know, all of his poems he'd written, he he buried them with her. Mm. Um, but then seven years later, he decided he wanted them wanted them back, and so they exhumed her body. Oh my gosh! Uh, so he could he could have his poems back, and this was one of them that he. Um, that, that he took from that book that he once buried with his dead lover. And it's uh, you can still see the um, pictures of the original book and it's you know covered in dirt and there's these worm holes eaten oh, through wow. them and it's it's so fascinating. That's so insane. I know. I to be um, I, I like to think of the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood of kind of like the beat poets of the 1800s you know they were really yeah they they were really you know doing it all first um anyway I uh yeah that was my favorite that was one of my favorite (laughs) (laughs) thank you Ellie now we have time for two more poems or two more pieces um now this piece is um has traveled via Ellie to us as a favourite of one of her housemates. Thank you, Bonnie. (laughs) Suppose I were to begin by saying that I had fallen in love with a colour. Suppose I were to speak this as though it were a confession. Suppose I shredded my napkin as we spoke. It began slowly. An appreciation, an affinity. Then one day it became more serious. Then... Looking into an empty teacup, its bottom stained with thin brown excrement coiled into the shape of a seahorse, it became somehow personal. And so I fell in love with a colour. In this case, the colour blue. As if falling under a spell. A spell I fought to stay under and get out from under in turns. That is by Maggie Nelson from the book bluettes yes my uh dear friend and housemate uh bonnie recommended that to me thank you so much bon i was uh minutes before i left the house to come here tonight crouched in her bedroom looking through her books (laughs) and she picked this up and i knew i had to include it so beautiful and it has as you can imagine a beautiful colored blue that wraps around the cover so (laughs) Now, we are going to finish up with a recording of uh, Scars by Luca Lesson. Um, If you've liked what you heard tonight, feel free to send us your submissions to writehereradio at gmail.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. Also, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram and give us a follow at Right Here Radio. We'll see you next week, guys. This is Luca Lesson, Scars. In the city, scars fall upon us without warning through debilitating accidents, acrimonious attacks, and love. 
and to feel better in the morning, we are reborn through self-hate and an impossible escape to another love. Left screaming at the gods for inventing pain, we continue sharpening our blades and blaming ourselves and love. <laughs> but I believe that we are blessed with the inner reflexes for initiation, to gain scars. I believe that we were born to be torn and shattered and graced with razors. They say the brain is a muscle and muscles must be damaged to grow strong. That which does not kill me. We've known the old adage for so long, so scar. But rip your wounds so open wide you walk as if inside out. So your heart sits on top of your rib cage, proud and is no longer just worn on one of your sleeves every now. And then kidney with your kidneys, become known as a liver. Where your gut's like a scarf so you're never known to shiver. Deliver your soul so you don't need to speak. You just draw diagrams on the diaphragm and lungs. So your stance handsomely lands upon the tips of their tongues. Scar. Get your guilt amputated. Precious pretenses surgically removed. Jealousy scalped so your intestines, true intentions shine and protrude. Prove your intelligence with your skeleton, a bone through the nose so that they know what you know lives in your bones and it shows. Use your own skin to make a drum to beat. Your hair the strings on mandolins to make it strum and sing of your scar until you're covered in scratches. Till the scratches get so dense that you're covered in patterns and scratch at the patterns till there's no space in between. Till you're so covered in scars that it looks like you're clean. Then scar your pages with your stationery, but don't you dare stay stationary. Move. Leave track marks on every page you choose to lay your scars. Like us at facebook.com slash sinmedia. Follow us on Twitter at sinmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.